Welcome to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. Today, our primary guest will be Dr. David Usher, a family physician and diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine, to correct us on some myths about weight loss. And then we will entertain Father Jacob Meyer, a young priest whose life has been radically changed by radical weight loss surgery. But actually, if you know Father Jacob, he will probably be the ones entertaining us. But first, Chris has some medical news to share with us. Tom, this episode's news comes to us from the New York Times uh, and an article written by a reporter named Pam Bullock. Uh, And it's interesting, if any of our listeners were watching uh, Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings, um, there was reference to um, birth control as abortion-inducing drugs. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh was actually referencing a decision uh, on which he had an opinion um, regarding Priest for Life and their opposition to provi- uh, providing contraception, feeling that they were abortifacients or things that cause abortions. And what's interesting about this article is that the, the lead says, science does not support claims that contraceptives are abortion-inducing. So I thought for our listeners' sake, we should look into that article just a little bit. I think we should. I mean, this this cuts co- close to home. Uh, back in the late 90s, or through most of the 90s, my wife and I taught natural family planning, and we were kicked out of a couple of parishes because we taught that as fact. Um, and I know an OBGYN physician who carries around in his back pocket uh, the insert for one of the oral contraceptives, and he has underlined where it even says that's a possibility. So the article uh, states, most common types of contraception, birth control pills, condoms, hormonal intrauterine devices, etc., prevent conception by keeping eggs from becoming fertilized. They go on to say, the description abortion-inducing is most often used by anti-abortion religious groups (laughs) to characterize methods they believe can prevent a fertilized egg from implanting in the uterus. These groups typically say that such methods are morning after pills. Uh, And then she points out there are two main reasons that this does not comport with scientific evidence. Get ready. Reason one. (laughs) She says, first, and this is an award-winning writer for the New York (laughs) Times. She says, first, the medical definition of pregnancy is that it begins after a fertilized egg is implanted in the uterus, not before. And so, oh, that, convenient. So, don't change reality; change the language. Uh, she thinks that uh, Judge Kavanaugh's opinion flew in the face of science. She this statement flies in the face of basic mammalian biology, <laughs> right? Yes. So, uh, you might think, who could have an idea that pregnancy begins when the embryo, not the fertilized egg, but the embryo or the baby, implants in the uterus? We don't define an embryo based on where it's located. Nowhere else in biology would we do that. We define it by what it is. And interestingly, it goes back to a September 1965 um, opinion that was published by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists that says government agencies and the American medical organizations and scientific communities agree that the definition of pregnancy begins upon the implantation of a fertilized egg into the lining of a woman's uterus. But didn't they just create that out of thin air? They did. There's no science behind that at all. So sadly, uh, that's just not true. And her statement flies in the face, as I mentioned, of biology. Then she goes on, the second reason um, the position is incorrect is a growing body of research strongly indicates that morning after pills, such as Plan B, do not prevent implantation. Instead, the pills, if taken, Uh, up to five days after unprotected sex, work to stop fertilization from occurring. Now, that's interesting. So I, being the researcher that I want to be, (laughs) I, like your friend, pulled the package insert and the advertisements offline for Plan B. And our Plan B one step, as it's called, it says, it is not an abortion pill. It will not work if you're already pregnant. And they go on to say it works mainly by stopping the release of an egg from the ovary. And then it says, but possible other mechanisms include preventing fertilization of an egg, 
and preventing attachment to the uterus. Interestingly, they don't say attachment of what? Oh, my goodness. It just says attachment to the uterus. So not to bore our listeners with too much reproductive biology, but (laughs) think about it. So according to the Plan B literature, it's about 80% effective at preventing pregnancy if taken within 72 hours of intercourse. And it doesn't matter where in the woman's cycle she is when she takes the pill, and it's 80% effective. Which means? If you've taken the pill after ovulation has occurred, it's still 80% effective at preventing pregnancy. So it can't work by preventing release of the egg. Correct. Because the egg's already been released. Uh, Once the egg is released, it's fertilized in the end of the fallopian tube, and there's an embryo. So for that product to be 80% effective at preventing pregnancy, independent of where the woman is in her menstrual cycle, it has to work by being an abortifacient. That's not opinion. That's looking at the company's insert in their own literature and with an understanding of mammalian reproductive physiology. It's so funny. Those of us who are labeled religious fanatics rely on science often more than those who are doing the labeling. It is, it is remarkable and, and frustrating that such mis- misinformation uh, could and does exist. And now we go to our medical trivia question of the day. Cue the music, because you know, this I'm, is a short question. I'm sure at the moment people are pulling over in their cars just so they can get ready to hear this and be safe. I'm not sure, but if they are, thank you very much. True or false? If all of your blood vessels were lined up end-to-end, they could circle the earth. For extra credit, true or false, if all your blood vessels were lined up end-to-end, they could reach from the earth to the moon. Stay tuned for a fascinating interview on weight loss myths coming up next on Dr. Doctor here on Redeemer Radio. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. Chris and I are joined today by Dr. David Usher, who founded Reform Medicine in 2011 in southwestern Wisconsin, the Eau Claire area. He's a diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. He attended medical school at the University of Iowa and did a family medicine residency down in North Carolina at Duke and in the Fayetteville area. He spent two years in Kodiak, Alaska as a family doctor, and he treated patients in the Mayo Clinic Health System in Eau Claire from 1999 to 2011. And there he was medical director for weight management services. He has a a great breadth of experience with weight loss, and he's going to help us dispel some myths. Dave, thank you for being with us today. Well, thanks very much, Tom and Chris, for having me. I'm pleased to be here. So, Dave, give our listeners uh, a sense of, uh, pun intended, how big a problem this is. I've had the chance to travel outside of the the States a little bit, and it sure feels like when you're outside of America that the world is thinner than we are. Well, to avoid any political statements, I will just say America leads the world in a lot of things, and this isn't one of our best feet forward, let's say. But yes, I think that's true, and we are... A lot of the rest of the world is catching up to us slowly, but America leads the world in, in having obesity. And Americans, by and large, are probably 40% obese and another 30% are overweight, which means that only about 30% of the population has an, a normal body mass index. Now, is this a side effect, Dave, of prosperity? Are we, are we drowning in the availability of cheap calories, or uh, what? what is it about America that makes us particularly overweight and obese? Oh, gosh. How long do we have? Uh, <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> uh, 15 words or less. For a long, long time, there are a myriad of reasons, I think, that we have this problem. Going back to the 1950s, I guess, when there's uh, some, there was a, a movement uh, to limit fat intake because it was assumed that because people were overweight that they were eating too many calories and fat was very high concentrated calories, therefore fat must have been the problem. So a lot of government policy and research money and so forth flowed forth from that line of thinking. Uh, and we wound up with things such as the food pyramid, the low-fat diet, and somehow 
over the last 40 years or so, Americans were told to eat less fat, and what they, in order to achieve a lower fat concentration in their diet, they simply uh, ate more carbohydrate, and the mm -hmm. carbs is really where the problem is. People still eat the same amount of fat, the same amount of protein they did 40 years ago, but it's a lower percentage fat because they eat higher numbers of calories, and, and the only thing that's gone up really is the carb content of the diet. Wow. Well, you know, give our listeners a sense, because I'm sure people are driving right now thinking, I wonder if he's talking about me. So how do we define obesity? Well, that's a really a great question. The Obesity Medical Association in 2016 defined obesity. It's very long, but I'll give you the shorter version of it. But basically, it is a multifactorial, neurobehavioral, chronic relapsing disease state that has physical, metabolic, and psychological consequences. And um, so obesity is a disease just like diabetes is a disease. And when we in the Obesity Medicine Association like to say that somebody has obesity, not that they are obese, uh, because the, the disease uh, doesn't define the person uh, any more than a diabetic is diabetes. So we're careful about how we term that. But when you, if you look in the mirror and can say to yourself, gosh, I'm not that thin person I used to be, then you probably are at risk for, uh, if you don't have obesity, being on your way to having it. I mean, that's, that's a really simple, ridiculous way to look at it. But there are other ways to define it. A body mass index over 30, which if you can look up how to calculate your body mass index, but if you're over 30, that's one way to define obesity. Uh, another way to define it is by percent body fat, and that's a little more sophisticated and requires some kind of spendy equipment. But women with a percent body fat over 32% have obesity, and men with percent body fat over 24% have obesity. Those are a couple ways that you can define obesity and decide whether I have this thing. You can do abdominal circumference measurements and so forth. Just a lot of ways you can look at it. Well, let's get to the fun part. Let's dive into the potential myths. First, is this a myth or a fact that overweight people just lack willpower compared to healthy weight people? Uh, I would say that's mostly myth. I think just like people who are smokers compared to non-smokers, there might be some willpower issue there. For some of it, uh, it's, it's food addiction, mostly carbohydrate addiction. And it's very hard to overcome that when uh, most of the culture doesn't recognize that that is the issue. And so what I tell my patients is it's not your fault that you were raised in a culture that uh, with a government that subsidizes the production of sugar and grains and, all, and dairy products and all these yummy things that make us gain weight. So, and then you're raised in a culture where your mother loves you and they give you birthday cake and they give you all these fun things. And there's a lot, there's a, a lot of social events around, around food, right? So um, it's, it's not any individual's fault necessarily that they have this problem of obesity. It's just, it's a kind of a cultural thing. So when you surround yourself with people who are on the way to getting healthier, and this has been demonstrated in very interesting studies, if you take somebody in a, in a cultural group and get one of them to lose weight, everyone around them will start losing weight as well, whether they know the person or they don't. <laughs> so it could be, an office, could be an office environment, whether they hang out, they do things together, they don't. The entire organization will get healthier if you can get one person to start down that road towards getting healthier. I like and that. The I opposite say, is true. I the, say, the converse I'm is true. I could say I'm not fat. My friends are. I just need skinnier <laughs> friends. So let's move on. Let's move on. No, I, 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 I want to follow up with this. Carb addiction. Uh, is this a real thing? Just like other addictions cause changes in the brain with dopamine. That's exactly true. Yes. Um, it is the exact same addictive pathway in the limbic system. It's just wow. like any other addictive substance. It's not like that. It's the exact same pathway. So whether it's cigarettes, alcohol, drugs, pornography, gambling, you take that addictive um, thing, if you will, carbohydrates tickle the exact same system to give you the exact same addictive properties. Great. And the good news is that you can also recover from that just like you can recover from other addictions. Hmm. Interesting. 
Well, let's move on to another one. Myth or fact, late night eating leads to weight gain. I would say uh, that it depends on what you're eating late at night. If you load up on carbohydrates uh, before bedtime, um, that can certainly contribute to gaining weight. So, but that's true of any time of day that you eat those. But if you're if you're having our on our programs, we'll tell people if you need if you're hungry before before bedtime, eat some protein or eat some fat because that won't make you fat. Mm. Uh, Carb loading at bedtime will. Oh, very good. You know, um, this is one that you suggested for me, and uh, I'm curious to hear what you say. Is this a myth that slow, steady weight loss is better than rapid weight loss? There, uh, that's an interesting uh, point, and there's some. There's a. Um, let me just say, typically, I would say no to this. Uh, if a person is able to kind of make small changes and stick with them, doing their own kind of thing slow and steady might work for them. Uh, in, in the world of obesity medicine where I live, people who are coming in for help, people who are seeking out programs and so forth, mostly are because of their, um, this limbic system again, I guess, uh, that gives us a sense of reward. Um, mostly, we want to see some real results right now for the effort we're putting into this, because we have to fight this culture. We have to fight these cravings. Um, we have to shop differently, cook differently. For some people, they have to eat a different meal than their family will eat. And they want results for that effort because it's a lot of work. It's an emotional investment to say, you know what, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to try to lose weight. So to say, I'm going to get slow, steady weight loss. Um, if you're not getting results, you're not going to continue doing that thing. And so slow, steady weight loss is very hard to measure. Um, People say slow and steady, what's that, a pound a week? Well, I can, my weight can go up and down a pound based on whether or not I, you know, use the bathroom this morning. Right. So it's, it's very hard to judge whether that's a real pound or it wasn't a real pound. But when you come in losing three, four pounds a week or 10, 12, 15 pounds in a month, that is very uh, rewarding um, data. When you get it back, you go, oh my gosh, I'm down 12 pounds. That's great. Um, And it is very motivating for people to see those kinds of changes. And they will continue to do those things that got them that kind of improvement. Whereas the other slow, steady stuff, that's a little bit harder to get people motivated by. And I just think it's uh, setting somebody up to fail if, if all you do is say, Oh, you just do slow, steady weight loss because they'll get confused about what actually gets them that kind of reward. Excellent practical points. Is this a myth? A low-fat diet with lots of fruits and veggies with whole grains is best for losing weight. That is a myth. Wow. But isn't that what our government, who's here to help us, has been saying for years? (laughs) Run. (laughs) Run from that government. (laughs) Uh, We're only here to help you. So... um, Here's, here's what I would say to that. Our government's been saying that for, what, 40 or 50 years? And look at the and, results. And look at the results, right. <laughs> the proof is in the pudding, as you as they say. Um, high-carb pudding. You can't... <laughs> high-carb pudding, yeah. You can't... You, you, there was, I've seen studies on this. There was one really landmark study, I guess it's about 10 years old now, where they looked at various diets, um, brand-name diets like The Zone and Ornish and... Atkins and one other one. Um, and what they found was the study wasn't really all that good because what they found was that if you, if you don't do any of these diets, they all fail equally (laughs) 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 because people just didn't stay on them very well. But of the, of the groups that actually stayed on the diet, there was roughly equal weight loss. But when you look at the metabolic factors among the weight, among the diets, the Atkins diet, which people now, thank goodness, we change, we call, call it something else. We call it keto, <laughs> uh, mm. our ketogenic diet, um, got substantially better reductions in blood pressure and blood sugar and triglycerides and improvements in your good cholesterol um, and other metabolic factors, which the low, low-fat diets just don't get you uh, because you're keeping your carbohydrate consumption high enough that you're stimulating the insulin and you continue that hyperinsulinemic kind of 
thing, which gives you the diabetes and heart disease and all those inflammatory problems from the obesity. Dave, so, this, go ahead. Um, I don't know if that's helpful. That's very helpful. We need to take a break right now and come back with more of this on Dr. Doctor, coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Thanks for joining us back on Dr. Doctor here in the studios of Redeemer Radio. We're joined uh, today by Dr. David Usher, an expert uh, in obesity and weight loss medicine. Uh, we are continuing with myth busting pretty, uh, pretty effectively there. So we'll move on to another myth or, or truth. You tell us, Dave, if you want to lose weight, you've got to go hungry. I would say that's one of the greatest myths out there. Um, our, we, about, we see well over 100 medical weight loss patients every month in our small practice. And, um, and one of the one of the basic rules we tell people is we don't want you to ever be hungry on this diet. Wow. Um, so, so that um, people understand um, a, a relatively high-fat, low-carb, adequate-protein diet should allow you to eat fat and really, for most people, protein uh, in whatever amount it takes for them to be satisfied and not be hungry all the time. If they're still hungry, eat some more, we tell them, because... Um, that's their system telling them that they need it. And by eating that, they won't be eating carbs. Mm. Uh, fat does not increase your insulin level and therefore allows your body to burn fat um, freely. Um, protein, if you eat too much, can, can lock up your fat stores. But it's, most people will, over time, realize, gosh, I'm, I'm just not hungry. I had a guy tell me that today. So, you know what, I've started your diet and so I'm eating a couple of meals a day, but mostly I have to remind myself to eat because <laughs> I'm just not hungry. Wow. So it, if you're, the carbohydrates drive the insulin levels, and it, if, as you doctors probably know, when your insulin level goes up, your blood sugars start to come down, and you can get what we call reactive hypoglycemia or low blood sugar, right. and that makes people ravenously hungry. Sure. Um, so that they can't focus on anything else until they eat something else. So they'll go eat some quick sugar load and bring their blood sugar back up, and they'll feel better for a little bit. But that's a terrible cycle to get in, but we see it a lot. Is this a myth? You have to count calories to lose weight. That is a myth. Ooh. Uh, we ooh. never ask our we never ask our patients to count calories. Um, uh, we instruct our patients on what are high carbohydrate versus low carbohydrate foods, and we just ask them to avoid the high carbohydrate foods. Therefore, they don't have to count the foods they're not eating. Uh, and then they just stick with a, a reasonable number of the low carb foods, and they, they do better. Uh, they don't have to count the calories in the fat or the protein. The body will naturally tell you when you've had enough of the fat and the protein um it's the way i describe this to people is there are not people talk about three macronutrients fat carbs and protein yes i tell people that's a myth Ooh. there are really only two there are only two nutrients there fat and protein there are essential fatty acids essential amino acids but there's no essential carbohydrate that's a in great fact point. that's one of the first things we learn in physiology and medical school is gluconeogenesis. That's the body takes protein and makes carbohydrate. Your liver does this for you. And what is it? It's glucose mm. that your body makes for you. And it will make all the glucose you would ever need. If you never ate any, your liver would make enough for you. There are certain cells in the kidney and the brain and the blood cells that need glucose. But the body would... This is a, this is a Catholic radio station, so I guess I can say this. Yes. What kind of engineer would God be if he would make a system <laughs> that would run out of its own fuel supply so fast that the system would die based on the amount of glucose that the body can store? So the body has to be able to make its own glucose, and it does. Um, so if you don't eat any carbohydrate, all you do is get healthier. Um, that's not realistic for most people, so we don't try to get them on zero uh, carbohydrate diet. People like a little vegetable and maybe a little tiny amount of fruit here and there. But carbohydrate is a drug. It's not a nutrient. It affects the brain chemistry just like um, drugs do. The, alcohol, the dopamine and the serotonin systems are affected just like wow. 
uh, Prozac or but- or Wellbutrin would affect your, that's your brain's fa- depression medicine. You know, that's fascinating. We, we we talked about the limbic system and addictive pathways with carbohydrates. I wonder why those same pathways don't respond to, to proteins and fats. You know, we're addicted to big pieces of bread, but we're not typically addicted to, you know, broccoli uh, or something less uh, less necessarily pleasing. Isn't that interesting? So where Yeah, can... well, I think it's because there's the concentration of carbohydrate in broccoli is so much less. Mm. It's like a it's like having a, a ultralight cigarette versus a Marlboro Red or something. You know, it's just really hot. And nicotine, like, why would you smoke that, you know? So where can people go to find examples of the kind of diet you recommend to your patients? I, I will tell you um, that we frequently refer patients, whether they're on our weight loss program or not, uh, to a website which I have, uh, full disclosure, I have absolutely no financial interest in. And it's a dot-com, but I don't think they even sell anything. They are just a fantastic source of information on low-carb eating. It's called dietdoctor.com. And some of the world's leading experts on obesity management and low-carb eating have free videos and and recipes, endless recipes, and endless information about all these various health problems that people deal with and how low-carb eating can make that better. So that's where I will refer many of my patients for various things. So you've already shown Uh, that it's a myth that fat is the enemy. Um, And you've told us that this is also a myth. You don't need to track your food intake to lose weight. Is that correct? Is that a myth? I would say you don't need to track count calories. I would say you have to be very cautious about your carbohydrate consumption. And ah. You have to limit your carb consumption. So that's if you're going to count anything, that's what you would count. Yeah, so that's exactly right. So I would look at, um, I, I talk to people kind of this way. I say basically it's kind of grains, potatoes, and sugars and things that look like those. Um, so any everybody thinks oatmeal is a health food. I tell them you're you're poisoning yourself with carbohydrate to get a little bit of fiber um, with oatmeal. It's really I. Um, Lord help me, I was raised in Iowa, right? And that's the corn <laughs> state. Uh, yes. But uh, so wheat, rice, corn, and oats are the four biggies. Everybody thinks quinoa is healthy, and some of these other things. But when you look at the carb content, it's all pure carbohydrate. Uh, and that stimulates insulin, and insulin forces you to store fat. So <sighs> grains and then potatoes. So basically, potatoes being anything that's kind of a root vegetable. Sweet potatoes are the worst of all, in fact. Oh, everybody wow. thinks sweet potatoes are health food. Um, they're loaded with vitamins and all these things that I hear. Um, <laughs> but on a, on a per, per gram of weight, um, measurement, they are higher in carbohydrates than white potatoes. Um, so they're really, and they're sold to us as health food. And that's the sad thing is so many of these things are sold to us as health food. Are there so any whole pro- grain pasta has All just bad. as much carbohydrate as the white pasta. Are there any protein example. bars that you think are truly good for people? Um, there are protein bars that have um, well, let's put it this way. I don't advocate for any particular protein bar, and I'd rather have people eating whole foods. Got it. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there's very good scientific evidence that using protein bars as a meal replacement is a very effective way to help manage weight. So the protein bars I would look for when you go to a look at a protein bar uh, would be to look at the, the content. You always have to read the nutrition labels. Yes. And you want to look for something that has a carb content of like five grams or less per serving. Um, and then the protein should be 15, 20 grams um, per serving to make it a real kind of meal replacement. You've got to have a decent amount of protein and then keep the carbs real low. Um, How many grams of carbs uh, should somebody keep their daily intake under on average? Oh, that's a great question. That leads me to the thought I had a second ago, which is people don't understand what when you're talking about grams of carbohydrates, I find it very useful to teach my patients that roughly one teaspoon of white sugar is equal to somewhere between four and five grams of carbohydrate. Mm. 
one teaspoon of white sugar is about, I say five grams just to make the math simple. Okay. But when I, when you point out to them that a 12 ounce glass of orange juice oh. is equal to a 12 ounce can of Coca-Cola, yes. which is equal to eating about eight and a half teaspoons of white sugar, <laughs> they don't even ask me if orange juice is on the diet. <laughs> <laughs> It's not. <laughs> they just have no. I. They just have no idea. Yeah, you eat a, a medium baked potato, and it'd be something like sixty grams of carbohydrate, which is the equivalent of eating twelve teaspoons of white sugar. And you start having these conversations and pointing these things out to people. When you start reading labels and realizing, holy cow, I've been poisoning myself with this stuff for years. Uh, and. And somebody told me it was good for me. Of average, a serving of pasta of like 54 grams of carbohydrate. That's 11 teaspoons of white sugar. Who would eat that? So how many carbs? We want to get to one other line of questioning. But So what's the bottom oh, sure. line? Under 150, 200 grams, 100? What do you usually... On our weight loss program, we get people under 20. Wow. Ooh. Less than 20. That's impressive. Um, if you can keep your... If you can, if you can get it under 100... You can do pretty well, at least in weight maintenance. If you want to really um, unlock your fat stores and lose weight more quickly, um, then we recommend getting them down under 50. And when we're really serious, we, uh, which and our when our patients are coming to us, they're really serious. Um, then we get them under 20 grams a day. And they don't have to count so much their protein and fat if they're downing their carbs that much. No, precisely. We they, once they get a sense of how much. Everybody, if you look at the marketplace, protein and fat are sold pretty much in decent serving sizes. So, for example, a quarter pounder is about, a quarter pound burger, for example, is, a, is 25 to 30 grams of protein. Mm -hmm. And that is a pretty decent sized protein meal. And people know, the, the market knows that they're not going to sell a lot of one pound hamburgers because people just don't want to eat that much. They'll right. get full on that, and they'll stop long before that ever, will, because their appetite for that will go away. Yes. Um, now, you can sell them a monster French fry, and they'll eat all of that, because carbohydrate has, we have no natural appetite for it, because there is no essential carbohydrate. <laughs> we have no natural mechanism for this knowing when we've had theme. enough, other than yes. we feel sick. Yeah. Well, Dave, yeah, we, go, oh, my gosh, we have about know. a minute, minute and a half left. We want to ask a leading question for the next person we're interviewing. When is weight loss surgery a realistic option for patients? Um, there's two answers to that. One is, um, does my insurance cover it? And then the other is, uh, and then the other realistic question is, when everything else has failed. Mm. If you have, if you just have struggled and struggled, or you don't have uh, the tools around you, or you don't have a medical weight loss expert in your area who can help you with medication adjustments or using weight loss medications to help you control your weight, um, then going on to a surgical uh, option certainly is a reasonable thing to do. Um, the Then the second part of that kicks in, which is, but it's expensive, uh, and you have to go through some hoops generally for insurance companies to cover this because they don't want to uh, waste resources on somebody who's not really serious about getting their, improving their health through managing their weight. Dave, you have been fascinating to interview. I, I, you're high on my list to have back. You've destroyed Just, a lot of myths that we've... Uh, and we even had some more to talk about, <laughs> but right. th this is great. Um, thank you so much for being part of Dr. Doctor. To our listeners, we'll be back with a fascinating personal story after the break. Welcome back to our final segment of Dr. Doctor here on Redeemer Radio. And as promised with every episode, we have the answer to the medical trivia question I posed at the beginning of the show. True or false? If all of your blood vessels were lined up end to end, they could circle the earth. What do you think, Chris? That's a tough one. That's a lot of blood vessels. And a lot of people don't realize that the vast majority of our blood vessels are capillaries. They're microscopic. You, you couldn't see them with your naked eye. Well, the answer is true. Uh, the average adult has roughly 60,000 miles of blood vessels in the body. 
But at 60,000 miles, it wouldn't make it even halfway to the moon. So you'd need <laughs> at least three people's blood vessels to make it to the moon. Not that there's any practical information included in that. And that ends for today, our medical trivia question. Now for something really interesting. That's not trivial. Not, not at all, no, or small. No, Tom, we're going to continue our theme of weight loss um, from, uh, from a previous guest. And we want to talk about a victory uh, in the weight loss war. And uh, I think anyone who's struggled with weight would, would agree that, it, that it, it does feel like a war and a battle. And America would be the front lines in the world. <laughs> Absolutely. So we're joined uh, today by uh, someone very famous in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, Father Jacob Meyer, who is the pastor at St. Monica in Mishawaka, Indiana. And in case there's parishioners listening, that's not South Bend, we're supposed <laughs> to point out. So, Father Jacob, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I don't know how famous I am. Infamous might be more of an <laughs> accurate title, but we want it to be nice. I'm excited since to be we're with you. Here. <laughs> oh, it's, you charity, charity itself. You are. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. So, so, Father, is obesity a big thing in your family? I wouldn't say that obesity is a big thing in my family. No, um, there are a few people in the family that are obese, but if you look at my family, they're fairly average sized to begin with. I was the one that kind of stuck out. Because? Because I was the obese one. And <laughs> if you looked at it, a lot of people blame people's parents for for obesity. And like, oh, well, they were obviously not raised, you know, correctly dietarily or whatever. And I would have to say that I always felt really bad for my mother, who was a nurse. <laughs> and she made sure that I ate everything that I was supposed to. The problem was, is I came from a big Catholic family and all of my aunts and uncles and my grandparents all over to their two block radius. And if I wanted something else to eat, I could easily find it. Mm. <laughs> so no shortage of access to food. When did you no. first realize that you were overweight? I don't know if there was ever a time where I didn't know that I was overweight, although I wasn't always overweight, and or not to the extent that I really was. So I was always a, a bigger kid, maybe starting in like third or fourth grade going on. And it wasn't out of control. Of course, my, you know, my mother being a nurse, you know, was certainly worried about it and trying to keep me on the right track because I had a natural aversion to anything that required sweating. <laughs> I, uh, they put me in every sport known to man and I hated all of them. Yes, that's so true. And let me tell you, I, well, the only thing that I even got close to success with was soccer because they simply put me in the goal. I took up most of the net, and statistically, I couldn't screw that up too terribly. But I hated it with a passion. I mean, they tried. My parents tried so hard to get me to enjoy physical activity, and I just loved my book and quiet, and that's just who I was. And it, and unfortunately, that led to two bad habits and. And those bad habits became, you know, my love for sugar is, is quite literally an addiction. And I didn't realize that until it was too late. Wow. That I was completely addicted to food. So, Father, and, at, at what point did you say, I'm going to lose weight uh, and begin to try? And then what did that look like and how did it turn out? That, that question to someone who, was, who has struggled with their weight is always a funny question. Because <laughs> when did I decide? It's really how many times have I decided? <laughs> and I mean, it's almost after it, you, every single person who struggles with weight has that moment where they're shoving the food into their face and they realize that they don't even want it. They don't have any desire to eat it. In fact, they're full. They're actually to the point where eating more is hurting them. Hmm. They actually have, and they feel that, and yet they continue to eat. Wow, that's remarkable. And they realize that they're out of control. And every person, every every person who's overweight that I've ever spoken to, in the in, and I was at that point so many times. They say in that moment, "This is the moment," and literally they have tears in their eyes. They're disgusted with themselves, but at the same time they're motivated. They want to do better. But the problem is, is that no matter how many times I said that, and I did try. I tried Weight Watchers, I tried Atkins, I tried South Beach, I tried whatever. I never had the willpower to keep going. Were you always hungry when you were on these diets? Certainly. I was definitely always hungry. Even, and, even, and the thing about it is, is that even on those diets where you can supposedly eat any, any amount that you want, 
you know, like the Atkins, the, those types of diets where they're like, oh, eat as much bacon as you want. You're fine as long as it's bacon. Uh, whatever those things are. <laughs> the problem is, is that not only is that not good for you, but it's also like my addiction isn't just to food in general. It's normally to sugar. Right. And so everyone is particular. And so that's not with everyone. But for myself and my struggle, my struggle was sugar. And so I could eat all the bacon I wanted to. But if that bacon wasn't dipped in that honey syrup, I'm not happy. Oh. And and so that's my my greatest problem was that I just and then once I start sugar, I can't stop. Mm. Now, here was the interesting thing for me was that I didn't start gaining weight excessively. Uh, to, I mean, I was always certainly overweight and definitely by any terms of any medical profession, obese. But I guess relatively to the American culture, I was not obese <laughs> until really I got to the seminary. And oh. it was a couple of years into the seminary where my general life is workaholism. That's definitely something that I have tend towards to begin with. Why? Because I find my worth in in the in the um you know in the praise of others unfortunately that's one of my central character flaws it's something i worked on for six years in the seminary but i feel a lot of people that have um obesity issues have a similar story that they throw because they're unhappy with themselves in one aspect of their life they throw themselves entirely into another normally their work or some other relationship or something else so that they can feel that worth at the end of the day hmm. And for me, that was definitely my work. And, uh, you know, and when you're working for God, it's it's very easy to say, I have to throw myself entirely into this because it's all for the Lord. So at the, the problem was is that, yes, continue. At the time that you sought weight loss surgery, how much overweight were you? So at this time, uh, I had gained, by the time I was, when I was assigned at St. Charles <laughs> as a seminarian, that was when it all began. Um, and until the time I... I was back at St. Charles as a priest and deciding to change. I was 398 pounds. And your ideal body weight would be what? 180-something. Wow. Okay, so about 200 pounds less. Tell us how you got into surgery and what that was like. So Dr. Holly was my doctor in uh, Fort Wayne, a wonderful man and a great doctor, and I'm so thankful to him uh, because... He, there are two major things that happened to me. He looked at me and he said, you need to lose weight or you're not going to be able to do God's will in your life, hmm. more or less. He didn't use those exact words, but he said, your ministry is going to be impeded and you're going to meet God a whole lot sooner than you were supposed to. <laughs> Ooh, and good doctor. That's, a really, that's a really awkward moment when you're a priest because there's a lot more people that are supposed to come to God through you, but if you're not there to do it, you know, you're going you're gonna to hear about that. So that's where I realized, and he, and he told me, he goes, you could lose this naturally. You could do this if you wanted to. But here's the kicker. You would have to radically change your life, and you would have to radically change the way you minister to people because this would take almost your entire effort and focus. Hmm. And he looked at me and he said, let's both be real, Father Jacob. You will never do that. <laughs> and I said, you're right. <laughs> and he said, on top of that, statistically, people who are who are my size – who lose the weight naturally, if you will, the statistics of them keeping that off is, is not as successful. Now, now when he, he looked at me and he talked to me about the surgery, he had had other patients that had great success with it, and he, he just said he wanted me to think about it. And I'm the type of person where I don't think about things that much, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, if, if, it's, if it's right, and if I think it's what the Lord wants me to do, I'm just going to do it. And so I said yes, and I never looked back. Wow. And and I thank God for that day. And, oh, uh, Dr. Holly, if you're listening, know you're getting prayers from me a lot <laughs> because it it did change everything about my life, and I'm so grateful for it. Well, Father, help uh, help our listeners understand what the actual surgery was like and, and really the recovery. What was that like? Yeah. The surgery was very easy. I was very blessed. I did it as a younger person. Most of the people who go through the surgery are much are, are older than I was. And so as a younger person, I did it at the right time. I did this before I had diabetes or heart issues or high cholesterol or all of these other symptoms. Uh, so as a result, I don't think I did not have any complications due to the surgery. Surgery was easy. The only thing I found out was that I was allergic to morphine. And you can't know that <laughs> until you try it. So... Um, so we found that out the hard way. But other than that, uh, everything went very smoothly. Dr. Sloan was wonderful. 
the, I think one of the best parts about bariatric surgery is that it's holistic. The surgery, it's not just you go in for the surgery. There is a preparation. They have to, you are screened psychologically. You are taught um, how to cook for yourself. You have a dietitian. You have an exercise science person. You have a, a psychologist. You have all of these people that are helping you to understand how you got to where you were and how not to go back there. Wow. So uh, lest we be confused, did you awaken from the surgery and say, I don't want sugar anymore ever. I have no interest in sugar. <laughs> oh, please, dear God, if it was only that way. Some actually, some people do have that experience that they just can't eat sugar anymore hmm. and because their body can't um, absorb it in the same way. My, unfortunately, no. I can eat anything that I want. I had a, I had the, uh, the gastric sleeve, which means I didn't mess with the intestinal tract, so it wasn't as intensive. They just shrank the stomach, and the stomach grows back. Hmm. And so um, I can eat anything I want. And that, that's unfortunate. I wish I had a golden ticket. But no, that didn't take away my cravings for sugar. <laughs> However, what it did for me was that I was, res I was getting results so rapidly that my will and my motivation changed. Uh, isn't that interesting? And, th and that was the key for me. I was losing weight so rapidly. And when you see results, you naturally become more motivated to continue. And so what happened was that in that period of rapid weight loss, what they do for you is that they then get you into the good habits that will keep you going. And so I rapidly increased my exercise. I learned how to eat and I only ate the things that I liked. So I just found the things that I liked that were also healthy for me and I only ate those things. And you're eating less than them because ate. you're full sooner? Exactly. Correct. And so and I was much full and so I could eat very little at first. Obviously you're on liquids for a while. And then you're on basically baby food consistency. And so it's certainly a process of um, it's it's not easy by any means. And people will look at me and they'll go, oh, you did it the easy way. You cheated. <laughs> and um, and I kind of and I get what they're saying and I, I laugh it off. But it was by no means easy. And and I had to work the weight off like the weight didn't just fall off. I, I still have to exercise. And how and rapidly now, did you lose the weight? And how much did you eventually end up losing? So I am now three years out of three and a half years out of my surgery, and I've lost uh, I lost two hundred pounds, <laughs> a little over two hundred pounds. That's a high school senior, lost, as you like to say. That's correct. I was <laughs> I am half the man I used to be, um, or I was. Uh, I'm not I'm not at that point anymore. They they prepare you for that that you gain a little you gain that a little bit of the weight back. You get to a lower point and your body doesn't like it, and you gain a little bit of that weight back. Um, however, I can gain, I could, I could quite literally eat my way right back there. Wow. And, and in the last year and a half, um, especially with the stress of becoming a new pastor and all these different things, um, I've gained, you know, I, I've, there's been periods where I've gained 50 pounds of that back wow. and then worked it back off wow. and then gained it back. And so I can still, but the way my body is set up, the best thing about this program is I know my body so much better. I, I literally can lose 10 pounds in two days wow. and I can gain 10 pounds in two days. I'm tied to my scale, which is my motivator, which is a lot of people say is not the best thing, but you know, that's the way of the world. <laughs> but I, well, the best thing about this is that what has changed in me and what has made me a different person is I know what I can do. I know I can lose this weight. I know I can lose it and there's always hope. And so I have an exercise regimen that is fairly intense. Um, I try to work out once or twice a day, um, sometimes taking a day off, sometimes not. Um, the, the, surgery, not the surgery out. must have cured your allergy to sweat. That's good. It, it did because I know now what the... Uh, what the results are. Uh, and so I still joke that I still don't sweat in public. Everyone's like, do you want to run outside? I go, not a chance. I'm going to the gym where everyone expects people to sweat and then I'm going to leave. And, but I actually enjoy it now. I love it. I, it's a part of my life. Uh, there are in a, but at the same time, it's something that I definitely still struggle with. Have I had those moments where I have gone out on a binge of sugar and completely fallen off the wagon? You better believe I have hmm. even after the surgery. And so this is not a magic pill. I can't eat whatever I want. All this did was even the playing field for me. It gave me a fighting chance wow. to be healthy. And that's the thing that people don't realize is that if you don't change your ways, you'll go right back. 
Father, you we still need virtue. We have a little over a, a minute left with you. What advice do you have for those listeners who are struggling with too much weight? I would say that if the number one thing I think is is exercise and then and then diet. A lot of times we focus on diet before we focus on exercise. And I think that for myself in my time, and of course you listen to your doctor, but um, I, I wasn't able to have the results that I wanted until I got my exercise routine in, in place. And so I think that's something that's very important. But I would say the second thing is, is if you're thinking about this surgery, it was one of the most blessed things that I ever did in my life. And I'll never forget climbing to the top of the Cathedral of Florence and standing on top of the dome and saying, I'm never going back because I could have never done this in my former life. And I want to be able to climb the dome of every cathedral in the world. And it's a most glorious feeling. And so I, I highly recommend anything that you can do to be motivated to lose the weight, do it. And anyone you need to reach out to to make that happen, go for it. Wow, Father, it's, um, you summed that up so beautifully. I know that our listeners, if they weren't motivated before, they have to be motivated after listening to you. So thank you for your, thank you for your work and for your witness. And uh, on behalf of all the people's lives that I know you touch on a daily basis, thank you. And for all our listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. If you'd like more information about the Catholic Medical Association, you can find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D.org. This is Dr. Tom McGovern signing off for Dr. Doctor. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. We'll be signing off until next time. Thank you again for joining us. Remember, your medical decisions could have profound consequences. Choose wisely. Choose Catholic. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1, or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Dr. Doctor is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You can help support the show at RedeemerRadio.com slash donate.